Amen. It's great to be able to hear about what God is doing through the Good News Clubs. Uh, enjoyed hearing those updates and consider how the gospel is going forth from our church and members here. Thank you for those of you who served in that way, in that capacity. I know there are other elementary schools that need a club, and I would love to talk with any of you interested in that. Uh, and then thank you so much for your singing as well. Uh, when we were singing the last song, I just did it as a form of prayer. May our eyes be fixed on him, our soul's reward uh, this morning. And that's my desire through the sermon. It's been my prayer that God will use this sermon to fix our, our attention on Jesus for the whole week, not just for today. So let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4 in your Bibles. Um, after the sermon, we'll be partaking in the Lord's table together as well. So uh, really have a great day of worship here together today. Uh, but Romans chapter 4, I'm going to be looking at verses 9 through 17, the heart of Romans chapter 4. I don't think I'll be able to get the whole way through the chapter today, so got it on the docket next week to finish Romans 4. At least that's the current plan. Uh, so trust that God will use this word to encourage us. As you turn to Romans 4, um, there are uh, handouts available in the bulletin for you, if that's helpful. There's a PowerPoint I'll be using at different times as well, uh, and, and these are just intended not to take your focus off of the text, but actually help you understand the text uh, better. And so if those don't help you, don't use them. Okay, I don't know what you can do about the PowerPoint behind me. Just ignore it if it doesn't help you. Keep your focus on God's Word and, um, and what He has for us to hear today. I'd like to start by uh, asking you if you've ever received an inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance? Perhaps you're not as fortunate as an unexpected person in Portugal that my family and I read about, or some of my family and I read about last night. This man had no idea that a wealthy ruler in Portugal had randomly portioned out his estate to strangers that he picked out of the phone book. Okay, now, for teenagers, a phone book is a, a book that... No, okay, <laughs> I had to explain a little bit of that last night to my children. Uh, the point here is this bachelor ruler, uh, who had no relatives of his own, died at the age of 42. And random strangers became very, very wealthy in the country. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Now, unfortunately, the way it normally works in our society is that inheritance is something that's linked with the death of a loved one. And for most of us, I'm confident that we would much rather have our mom and our dad than the inheritance. In our passage this morning, however, we're going to learn about an inheritance that will blow your socks off. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, the more time I had thinking about that this week, it's, it's just, it's simply amazing. And the way we go about getting it is not connected uh, in this passage to a death. There's a different way to get it. And so uh, the main premise of Romans 4, 19 through 17 uh, is that we will inherit 
the world if we follow in the steps of Abraham's faith. We will inherit the world if we follow in the steps of Abraham's faith. For some here today, this sermon will be a call to believe on Jesus Christ for the very first time. For others, no doubt, this sermon will be a challenge to persevere in faith and trust, even in the midst of difficulties, diseases, and then I think of some of our church family even facing death in the next few weeks. In Romans chapter 4, Paul appeals to Abraham for a few reasons. He does so in this chapter because the Jewish people felt that Abraham was the prototype of a devout Jew. But he's got other reasons for using Abraham as well. And one of those is because Abraham forms a great example of how someone can be justified before God. Now, last week in our sermon, we saw uh, Paul uh, compared uh, justification and works. He, he looked at that concept to point out that Abraham himself was not in any way justified on account of his works. Uh, this morning, we'll continue looking at false means of justification. So last week, it was justification works, verses 1 through 8. This week, it'll be circumcision and the law. We're going to hear about the law again uh, in Romans chapter 4. And so this morning, we start with Abraham and circumcision. And so if you're taking notes, and I don't want you to be distracted, it's Abraham and circumcision, verses 9 through 12. Uh, here, uh, Paul asks how the great father of the Israelite people was justified. Was it through circumcision? And uh, as I read through verses 9 through 12 to begin, look for all the times the word circumcised or uncircumcised is used. It's, it's over and over. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we saw that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in this passage, Paul begins with uh, questions about circumcision in Abraham. Paul's use of rhetorical questions, I think, is a way of just kind of drawing us in, right, to, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, drawing us in and helping us pay close attention. The question, the section begins, uh, verse 9, is this blessing? I think the blessing he's talking about in those, those few words there would be the blessing that David had just described in the Psalms. The blessing that a man could possibly not have his sins counted. That God would not reckon or count him 
And so what, what Paul continues to ask then is, is that blessing of forgiven sin only for Jewish people or are Gentiles also, uh, do they also have the option of having forgiveness of sins like this? Now, to answer this question, Paul asked more questions about Abraham in verses 9 and 10. Uh, he specifically asked whether Abraham was counted righteous by God before or after he had been circumcised. And uh, so, I think what Paul is doing here is he's making an argument from the chronology of Abraham's life. And that's where we'll just review Abraham's life for a moment. Okay, It's been... Quite a while since we looked at the book of Genesis and we saw the life of Abraham in Genesis. And so uh, in, your, in your handout, uh, I've given you kind of four main points that will help us orient Abraham's life. And you'll see the progress. One of the, the big points in Abraham's life that you would need to pay close attention to is the Abrahamic covenant. When God first gave his covenant promises to Abraham. That's found in Genesis chapters 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay. In these verses, God promises Abraham several significant things. We're actually going to look at that a little bit more closely later on. Okay. But that's the first mark on the timeline, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. That's Genesis 12. You move along in Genesis 15 and you come to Abraham's justification. There's a statement in chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham was justified. And we're going to look at that one too. Moving a few chapters later, you come to Abraham and his circumcision. That's important for Romans 4. It's found in Genesis chapter 17. And then finally, many of you know the great, you know, Genesis chapter 22, the chapter where Abraham is to offer Isaac. He almost offers Isaac as an offering on Mount Moriah. Okay, and so these are four significant moments. Now, the Jewish people in the first century tended to emphasize the last two, circumcision and the sacrifice of Isaac, in their writing and theology. But Paul's point will to be to go farther back and look at the first two and to make a point about faith. At this point, I want, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 15. And I want to read a passage with you, just one verse, Genesis chapter 15. Um, once you get there and I read it, stay there because I'm going to ask you to look at one other passage. Genesis 15. And uh, we're going to look at verse 6 together. Genesis 15, 6. It says, And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, so this is the verse in the Abraham story that talks about the justification of Abraham. He was made righteous because he believed. Now, when this event occurs, Abraham is approximately 85 years old. Okay, there'll be a quiz on that next week. Right, so he's 85. Okay. Now, that's a statement of Abraham and his righteousness. To find out where Abraham is uh, circumcised, you have to move forward in your Bible. Sometimes you turn a page, 
But go to Genesis chapter 17, and uh, I'll just point this out to you. Verse 24, Genesis 17, 24, says, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Okay. It is significant now that Abraham is approximately 99 years old, or he is 99 years old. And so the question that Paul plays off of in Romans 4 is, was Abraham justified when he was 85, when he believed, or when he was circumcised, when he was 99? Okay, now you can go back to Romans 4, and uh, we'll see how Paul answers that question. Okay, that's the nature of the questions in verses 9 and 10. With these questions, Paul appeals to the chronology or the chronological progression of the Genesis story about Abraham. Now, Paul's answer comes clearly at the end of verse 10 and in verse 11. So he asks these questions. Was Abraham justified before or after he had faith? And then, or he was circumcised. Then look at the answer, end of verse 10. It was not after but before he was circumcised. I like when a teacher asks a question, then they give the answer. This helps with clarity. Sometimes they assume you know what the answer is, and that's probably a bad assumption. Here Paul asks the question and he answers it, right? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. Here, Abraham was circumcised after he was justified, 14 years after he was justified. Circumcision was never to bring him salvation, but it was a sign or a seal of something that God had already done for him. It's a sign or seal of his justification. Circumcision was the physical identification of the covenant that God had made with Abraham And this was something that confirmed the validity of God's blessings already promised and given to Abraham. Now, before we move on from Paul's argument, I mean, it's it's pretty simple so far. I just want to stop and I just want to consider devotionally how amazing this is. Uh, God had a perfect time for all of the events of Abraham's life. All right, so... God not only had a perfect time in these events, God led a writer of scripture, Moses, to record this probably 400 years after Abraham's life. And then God led another writer of scripture 2,000 years later, Paul the Apostle, to read Genesis and to understand that God had reasons for everything he did in Abraham's life. And men and women, uh, I think that should be encouraging to us. God has reasons in his sovereign plans and purposes in every one of our lives. And I'm so glad he did this with Abraham. He did it in such a way, not only for Paul to point out these things about him, but to make Abraham a father of many people. And that's what we'll look at a little bit more. We might ask in verses 11 and 12, uh, what were God's purposes in doing it this way in Abraham's life? And that's what verses 11b and verse 12 are about. 
So if we were to ask, what were God's purposes in justifying Abraham on the basis of his faith, not on circumcision or before his circumcision, God had two purposes in it. Okay? And to find these, all you have to do is look for the words, to make him, in verses 11 and 12. So look at the middle of verse 11. The purpose was to make him. That's purpose one. And then if you look at verse 12, and to make him, second purpose here, right? So so we're going to dig in a little bit and look at what were God's purposes for justifying Abraham through his faith 14 years before he was circumcised. The first one is in verse 11 in the middle. Uh, let's read it and then we'll talk about it. It says, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Here first, God justified Abraham before his circumcision to to show something to future generations through Paul. It It was to make Abraham the father of all Gentile believers. I think that's who Paul's describing in this little phrase in verse 11 when he says, all who believe without being circumcised. Okay, this context in this way, this is a way of saying anyone who would believe from among the nations, from among the Gentiles. You see, it is through faith and not through incorporation into the nation of Israel that Gentiles would be counted righteous. And this is a very important point for Paul. This shouldn't sound unique or different. I mean, if you know the Pauline epistles, like if you know Galatians, for instance, you would know that Paul makes a big deal out of this. Gentile believers are not required to come under the law of Moses. And they're not required to be circumcised in order to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. They do not need to become Jews to be saved. They need to believe in Jesus alone for their salvation. Does that sound familiar? Sound like Paul? Good. Abraham was an ungodly man from among the nations when he was justified. He he lives well before the Israelite people begin. So the reason God did it this way, his purpose in doing this was to save an ungodly man from among the Gentiles on the in, in no way on the basis of being circumcised. But through faith, he did this so that Abraham would be the father of all who believe while being uncircumcised. That's God's first purpose. But if righteousness was possible without circumcision, Abraham demonstrates that, why did God have Abraham get circumcised? What would be his reasoning? Well, one of the reasons or purposes is given in verse 12. Okay, so look at verse 12. And to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, and so God's second purpose with Abraham in doing this is God later had him circumcised so that he would be the father of the Jewish people. As well, but more specifically than that, 
the Jewish people who follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. This image of following in the footsteps in ancient days is used much how we would use it today. It's imitating someone's example. So Abraham's the father of Gentile believers, and he's the father of Jewish people who believe God for their justification as well. Now, I was listening to a sermon this week, and uh, it was my cousin Brian. I I like hearing him preach, and uh, at the end of his sermon on Romans 4, he reminded me of a very profound an enlightening and moving children's song. Do you remember this song? <laughs> Father Abraham. Boy, it's been so long since I thought about that song. Gladly so. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? Profound. Now, the theology of that song is actually fine as far as it goes. Uh, although I could do without the spinning. And the uh, <laughs> Pastor Ben recommended we, we close with this song today. <laughs> I thought I would have wanted to give you some warning uh, well before today. You see, there is a sense in which Abraham was the prototype of a Gentile believer before his circumcision and a Jewish believer who walks in faith and not works. In this way, we can speak of the true children of Abraham, people from every ethnicity who are justified through faith and not through any external mark of Jewish identity. And so that's Abraham and his circumcision. He's not justified in that way. He's justified before that through faith. Now, there's one other paragraph I want to look at with you, and I still have time. Abraham and the law, verses 13 through 17. Abraham and the law. That's number two. Verses 13 through 17. Paul's not done using Abraham to mark out false means of justification. Uh, In these verses, he'll deal deal with one other false means, a means he's been picking on uh, for some time now. It's the law of Moses. It seems to me that Paul's whole argument in verses 13 through 17, there's some hard parts in here, but I think his whole argument revolves around answering two questions. And the two questions can clearly be seen Uh, that, that Paul answers in verse 13. The first question is, what is the Abrahamic promise? So Paul will tell us what that is. What is the Abrahamic promise? And then he will answer the question, how did this promise come to fulfillment? How was it fulfilled? Uh, And so in verse 13, uh, the first part of the verse, he answers the question, what is the Abrahamic promise? Look with me at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring uh, was that he would be heir of the world. Or uh, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. We're going to stop there. Okay. 
And we're going to pick up the rest of the verse in a little while. And so we, we begin by asking this question, what is the promise that God made to Abraham? And if I were going to answer that question from the Old Testament, I would think of this passage, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. For sake of time, I've got it here and I'll read it to you. The question we answer is, what is the promise of Abraham? Uh, verse 2 it says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So way back in Genesis 12, even before the statement of his justification, God makes these promises to Abraham. The promises are really threefold. He promises innumerable descendants, innumerable descendants to Abraham. He promises a, a land. If you keep reading, you'd see that clearly. Um, and he also promises that a great nation that will bring blessings to all the nations of the earth will come from Abraham. That's the Abrahamic promise. Okay, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Now, Paul makes much out of these promises made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. It's a big part of his letter writing. The Abrahamic promise was very significant in Paul's biblical theology. As significant, one could argue, if not more so than the Mosaic Law. Okay, now, we've heard a lot about the Mosaic Law already. Now we're talking about the Abrahamic promise. And the point I'm making is that Paul makes much out of the Mosaic Covenant, but he also makes much out of the Abrahamic Covenant and its promises. And as far as justification goes, how one is made right with God, the Abrahamic promise is something perhaps even more important because its demand is faith, like Abraham, and not works like the law. John Stott said it this way. He said, law language, words like you must or you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, words like God will, or when God says, I will do this for you, that demands our simple faith. Faith, belief. So if I were answering this from the Old Testament, I'd say Genesis 12. That's what marks out the Abrahamic promise. Remember what the question is? What is the Abrahamic promise? Genesis 12 makes it clear. However, in Romans 4, Paul has a different way of answering it. Okay, so we go back to Romans 4, and we're looking there, and he uses different words to describe this promise. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world. What's his promise? That Abraham would be heir of the world. But what does that mean? I think Paul might be summarizing the promises made by God to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God promised that Abraham would inherit the land. God promised that Abraham would have innumerable descendants. God promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Later, God promises that Abraham's descendants will possess all the gates of her enemies. In other words, I think what Romans 4 is, according to Romans 4, Abraham and his descendants 
will inherit the world. I think it's just a way of summarizing all those promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, now, think about that promise. God's promise to Abraham and to those of faith like him is that they will become an heir of the cosmos, that's the word, of the world. Now, there is still some acquiring of that promise yet to be realized. You see, I believe that this will be in the future ultimately fulfilled during a millennial kingdom where all the children of Abraham will inherit the entire world. This is true for all of us who believe in God through Jesus Christ. We will not only rule the world together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, by the way, says uh, that don't, Paul says, don't you know that we will judge angels in the future? We're going to rule angels? Well, when's that? I think it's the millennial kingdom. It's not only true that we'll rule the world together, everywhere from like here to Spain, Russia, China, Canada, we'll rule the world together. But this text says we'll own it all together. And this is true, men and women, for this section over here, that section, this section, this section. It's true for all of us if we believe in God's provision of righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we follow our father Abraham and believe that God will justify us, we will inherit the world. That's the Abrahamic promise. And it's all possible by a Messiah who came as Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place and was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if I ever come up to you and ask you, what is the Abrahamic promise? It's that we'll be heir of the world. Okay, second question he answers is how did the promise find fulfillment? How did that promise or how does it find fulfillment? And he answers that in a nutshell in verse 13b. Okay, so we look at the second half of that verse. Um, 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I mean, Paul's answer is twofold. One way it didn't happen for Abraham and his descendants, and one way it does. And that's what the rest of this paragraph is about. It did not come through the law. He will tell you more about that in verses 13 and 14. It did come through faith, and he will tell you more about why in verses 15 and 16. All right, so we'll do this, we'll do this quickly. It did not come through the law. Um, and we'll see this in verses 14 and 15. Look there in verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. 
For the law brings wrath, but where there is not law, there is no transgression. Okay, in, in, in these verses, Paul gives reasons. Uh, verse 14 and 15, you see the word for. Beginning, but there are two reasons why the law of Moses could not bring Abraham's promises to fruition. Now, Paul could reason from chronology again, right? He could do this in other places. He does this. He could say, well, Abraham wasn't justified on the basis of the law of Moses because Moses wasn't even living yet. Moses doesn't come for 400 years later, okay? But here he's got two other reasons. Instead, he starts by saying that if law observation is what brings the inheritance of the world, then faith and promise would be null and void. That's how the ESV translates this. And while there are a few different ways to understand this, it seems to me that Paul's saying that if obedience to the law of Moses was the requirement to be an heir of the world, then no one would ever get it. The promise would be worthless because no one can adequately adhere to the law. And that's true because, uh, in verse 15, the law of Moses brings wrath. Okay, Instead of bringing fulfillment to Abraham's promises, the law actually turns the sins of the Israelite people into something called transgression. And that's a key word to understand in this part of the text. The word transgression describes the violation of commandments that are specified and are written. So transgression is a certain kind of sin. Sin is bigger, it's broader, can include all kinds of different things. Within sin, there's a particular type of sin that means someone has told you what to do. They've given you a rule or a law, and you were aware of it. But you decided to step across the line. Okay, that's transgression, to step over the known boundary. I'll give you a few illustrations. All from parenting. No, a few illustrations. One I first heard when I was in seminary is my professor used the illustration of a mattress tag that says, do not remove under penalty of law. Okay, before you read that on the mattress tag, you could care, you would have never even noticed that there was a tag. Okay, but once you read that, then you think, how would anyone ever know whether I take this off or not? Right? The law produces, the rule produces transgression. It stirs within us a a rebellious spirit. Okay, now, you don't want me to do that. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Now, from years of parenting, many, many years of parenting, I would say that this is also true in parenting, right? It's, It's one thing to correct your child when he or she didn't know something was wrong. You just kind of deal with it. There may be some consequences, maybe. I'll leave that up to you. It's something else entirely, though, when your little bundle of depravity, I mean joy, right, knows that something is wrong, 
and decides to do it anyway. Heard stories of children even saying, no, 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 while they're grabbing it. They know it's wrong. That is an example of transgression. The law of Moses not only exposes our sin, it awakes within us a rebellion because of our sinful nature. And so that's why Abraham's promise does not come through the Mosaic law. It's because God wants people to actually experience the fulfillment of the promise. And the law does not bring fulfillment. It brings wrath. So it works as transgressions increase, wrath of God increases. But the text says in verses 16 and 17, it actually comes through faith. Through faith. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. What? The promise that we will inherit the world. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls existence into existence the things that are not. Here Paul explains that Abraham's promise is realized only through faith or belief. And then he gives two purposes for why it's based on faith. And you can, you can point these out. They, they both lead, actually, in the ESV, the translations start with G. Grace and guaranteed. So God did it this way with Abraham so that the promise would rest on grace. That's the first purpose. And grace is an important Pauline concept that Paul will say more and more about in Romans. Normally speaks of God's favor or his generous gift given to undeserving people. So instead of wrath, those who are in Christ Jesus experience God's favor, his generous gift. The second reason or purpose here is so that the promise might be guaranteed to all of Abraham's children. I've got a lot I could say about verses 16 and 17, but the point, I think, is fairly obvious here. God did it in such a way uh, that the promise would be a guarantee to Jewish believers and Gentile believers who have the faith of Abraham. For sake of time, and perhaps I'll say more about verse 17 next time, as we close, let us remember this week that we will inherit the whole world someday as children of Abraham through faith. We can hear this promise in Scripture and not make much out of it at all. It can run off of our back like water, fly right by us. But as we sit here this morning, I ask you, do you believe this? Do you really believe this as you sit there? You will one day inherit the world. That is a worthy meditation for us for the whole week. The whole week. 
Some might be here and ask, yeah, but what difference does it make for us now? I'll give you two. Two things. First, let this idea fill you with great joy and happiness as a child of God through faith alone. You know, it's okay to be joyful in the Christian experience. We can delight in some things. This week, won't you just delight in this? One day, one day. I'm not only going to rule the world. I've joked around in classes I used to teach. The one place I don't want to live is Wisconsin during the millennial kingdom. It's too cold. Maybe it won't be cold then. I don't know. Ask the Old Testament professor here. But may it fill you with joy this week. We're going to inherit the world. Not only going to rule, we're going to own it. We're going to be co-owners of this. And second, may this concept also help you to bear suffering well. Some of you are really going through difficult things. I am confident, men and women, that thoughts like these are not just little band-aids that help us when things aren't going well, you know, just a little bit. Now, it's thoughts like these that will sustain us even in those moments when we face death itself. One day, all those who believe in Jesus and follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith will inherit the entire world. Maybe it's thoughts like these that strengthened Pastor Tim Keller recently who passed away and in his final moment said this to his wife, Kathy. He said, there is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. May God help us all reflect on and enjoy such marvelous truths like this, this week, so that we'd be strengthened for any trial. What we're experiencing today is not the way it's always going to be. One day, One day we will inherit the world. Let's pray together.